Good day, everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. And I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Sam Ligon. Hey, Sam. Thanks for joining me. Hi. Thanks for having me, March. So, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. on 101.9 FM KVSH. It's also available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org. Thanks for joining us, and we're going to dive into the show. To get us started, if you can give our listeners a sense of who you are. Okay, I am a fiction writer. I write stories. I write novels. I write short, short stories. I write medium-length stories. I've also started writing nonfiction in the last two or three years, which I'm loving because I don't really understand it. So there's a lot of rules to be broken, and it's super fun. I'm an editor. I edit a literary magazine called Willow Springs. I teach at Eastern Washington University. I also teach at the Fort Townsend Writers Conference. I have lived all over the country. I moved every three years, roughly, when I was a kid, and I've now lived in Washington State for uh, 13 years. So I've lived in Washington State longer than I've lived anywhere in my life. My mom grew up in Oregon. The Northwest was the only place in my life that I always came to. So when I was able to move to the Northwest, it felt like I was coming home, even though I had never lived here. And I love being in the Northwest now. It's really exciting. I was a union leader in New York for a number of years, also as a teacher. Yeah, yeah no, okay, that's perfect grounding. I like that. So um, I've got a couple of books here with me that we'll chat about during the show. We're going to cover yeah. a number of other topics as well. By the way, what you mentioned about how often you moved, I'm curious, was that based upon being in a military family? No, it was not military. It was business. My father moved for different jobs. So as he moved, you know, into different work, uh-huh. we, we just moved. But literally, like, practically every three years. It was roughly every three years. So yeah. I moved as a freshman in high school to Chicago area. Joy. And then my parents <laughs> ended up – right. But actually, it wasn't that – my sister was a senior. Mm. So it was really hard for my sister. But for me, it was like, it was okay. But before – and that was the hardest move, moving into high school. Every other move for me – as a family, was actually fun. Yeah, but honestly, I, high school's just tough anyways. Yeah, it was tough. It was tough. But, but it made us unusually close as a family, as mm-hmm. siblings. And so with my own kids who did not move around a lot, I wondered, hmm, is, are they losing something by not moving? But at the same time, I also arranged things so that they didn't have to move. So clearly right. part of me thought there was massive value in not moving as often as I did. I lived in like 26 different houses by the time oh. I was uh, 21. Was that military? No, they were hippies. They got divorced. And every time I lived with one of them, the other one would move. And I went back and forth about every six months between them. Wow. Yeah. That is unbelievable. I went to 10 different schools. That's a lot. So the interesting thing about it is that the longest I've ever lived anywhere is 12 years here on Vashon Island. So, so it was when I... like me. Yeah. And then I wanted my kids to, even though I felt I got resiliency from moving and it became yeah. like this, you could always be good wherever you were. It wasn't totally. the world around you that defined you. It was you. Totally. So that's a strength. But... Just like you, I thought I wanted my kids to grow up in the same place. So we got here, and I'm like, I just want to be here for their childhood. And then I sit around and think, I wonder if that's going to make it harder for them that they're not used to moving. <laughs> but what they get is a, a different sense of home. And yeah. so I've had this experience all my life, especially my adult life, when people are like, where are you from? Yeah. 
And my answer is, I'm not from anywhere. Well, and you... when I came to the West, people, because I'd lived in New York for a long time before I came here, I'd lived in New York actually longer than anywhere until I got to Washington. Right. And so when I got to Washington, people, and because I'd lived in the East for so long, I had a, a little bit of an accent. People thought I was from New York. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't. You know, right. I mean, I, I was like, I'm not from anywhere. So, mm -hmm. and, and that's, that's a dumb answer to say, well, you know, if someone says, where are you from? To say nowhere mm -hmm. is a stu stupid answer, but it's actually true. Right. But the flip side of that is I'm also from everywhere. I want to feel like an American. Yeah. But yeah, I can be in Nebraska. Omaha is cool and I can be there. Yep. And in a way, I think when I've read, because I've been reading your stuff now ever since I met you at Centrum, I think it was four years ago. I think it has informed your writing in a way, because when I think of, especially your short shorts is what I've mostly read, flash fiction, whatever people want to call it, you bounce all over. It's not like it's some genre of the same type of people in the same type of environment. And I bet right. it's really informed your worldview. Staying in one place, I have been surprised at the benefits of being in one place, like having people know me for that long. And yeah. I've been like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I never knew that was even possible. But at the same time, when I write, I write from all these different perspectives that reflect all these different places I lived. Yeah, which is super cool because we still have all these amazing regional differences in yeah. the country. So even when people talk about homogeneity and saying, you know, everybody, you know, we've, we've, we've come to this place where there's a Taco Bell everywhere and there's mm -hmm. a Dollar General everywhere and every place is the same. Really, that's not true. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's massive differences regionally, which are really, really cool. But, yeah. but also the, the flip side. So, so I like that. But the, the idea of having a home, I wanted my kids. To be like, yeah, I'm from Washington. Even mm -hmm. though my kids were both born in New York, and they and they will identify with that. They don't see themselves as New Yorkers. They see themselves very much as Washingtonians, yeah. and they'll always have that. My, Kate, my partner's grandma, just went into managed care facility in Iowa uh, two days ago. Right. And when she and she's like 92 or something. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so Kate's mom is there helping her right now. She grew up. This woman grew up in Carroll, Iowa. She lived in the same house for 65 years. <sighs> When she was moved into this managed care facility, one of the things that made it really easy for her was that she knew a bunch of the people right. who were in this place. And Kate's mom said this is this made it so much easier because she knew all these people. And she had been a recluse. She's been old and in her house and kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, oh, she she's of that place and has yeah. all these connections, which you and I will never have. Well, I don't know about you, but I have like I have zero friends from childhood. The two friends that I might have held on to from high school eventually like faded away whereas my husband who spent from the age of like four onward he spent his entire childhood in Gilroy California he has friends that he's known longer than I've been alive yeah and they're still that's, there he'll call amazing. them up and they all remember being 11 or 10 and driving mom's car through town at midnight and getting caught by the police and told to drive home I mean they have these childhood memories that they share and yeah, I don't share that with anyone I have two high school friends, but, you know, one's in Charlotte, North Carolina, and one's in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We're all over the country. And, but we get together every couple of years. And, and, but, you know, that's it. It's interesting. But I also have, but I also have friends all over the country as yeah. a result of having, having moved and being comfortable moving around. Mm -hmm. so, so when I like to – when I travel for um, books, I see people mm. – I only go – I mean, I tend to go to towns 
where I know people. Yeah. And there are a lot of them. And it's super fun to be out in the country and see people that I've known over the last 40 years. I think, well, now there you go. Okay, so for, for my listeners out there who are planning to write a book and publish it, if you have lots of friends in lots of places, bam, <laughs> plan your tour now. <laughs> Couch surfing exactly extraordinaire. Right. <laughs> so let's talk here briefly about um, Wonderland, um, which, when did it come out? This came out last year, 2016. Perfect. So Wonderland, uh, you said, is a collaboration. I mean, it's obviously collaboration between you and the artist. There's, right. You're the only writer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. So I do want to talk a little bit about collaboration, which I'll mostly let you talk about it. But just so you know, I've been co-writing with a friend for a couple of years, and I just have found it to be extremely challenging and beyond awesome to do. So I'm thrilled with this. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say, but also... I also just co-wrote something with somebody. Yeah. A short, short piece of fiction was really fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you can do it, it's great. And if you can't, that's okay. Not everyone can collaborate. But the question I have specifically about this one is, do you have this book with you and would you want to read a small section of one of these? So you could lend your voice to the character in one of these stories. I'm sort of curious to hear you read your own work. And these stories are really, really playful. And some of them are artifacts. So like one comes from a fairy tale and one comes from a nursery rhyme and one comes from, you know, one is a kind of a love letter and one is a book jacket blurb. So some of them do this weird thing where they're playing with different kinds of artifacts. Well, if you Um, have, like, if you want to read a page, well, now this is a short one. You could actually read the whole thing because we don't do too much on the radio. Glazed is pretty short. Some of them are a little too – I haven't read Glazed yet. I just happen to notice it's short. But Glazed, some of them are too long. Yeah, you know what I'll do? I'll, I'll read a page of one that deals with a fairy tale. Sure. And and what I've found to be is real consistent with your writing over the years is, let's just say intense is definitely a good adjective, I think, <laughs> for what you write. Okay, but, okay, yeah, I think you're right. And, but the, I, I hope the intensity in these stories is an intensity of play. The other thing about this book is these are love stories, mm-hmm. which is different than – and now they're really, really weird love stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're love <laughs> stories. There's, a, you know, a kind of a sex goat in one of the stories. And I know. The other weird, there's weird animals in the story. Well, you know what's funny is we – okay, okay, so Sam, we have a gravel pit on Vashon Island. Nice. So I'm reading the one with the goat. And the gravel pit. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. I mean, honestly, actually, if you want to read that, that might, for my island audience, make them sort of, you know, they'd be like, oh. <laughs> and I just uh, thought, that's yeah. so Sam. And the, yeah, and that, and that comes from, a, like, the idea of a fairy tale. Right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. That, that acts like a fairy tale. Yeah, um, definitely. So, which was super fun. So the language is weird. Yes, and it's intense, which you always, like I said, intense. I'll just read two paragraphs of The Little Goat. And, sure. and so what it establishes is this fairy tale tone, mm-hmm. and then what's going to happen in the story, is that this, uh, which we're not going to get to, is that a goat is going to arrive and it's going to be talking to these kids, and the thing that the goat is going to say to these kids is, hey, you're not doing that right. Yeah. And then we'll, <laughs> we'll proceed from there in the story between these two kids who are you know, exploring sexuality. So the story is called The Little Goat. I'll just re- read two paragraphs, and it's a kind of a pretend fairy tale. Yes. But it's a sexual fairy tale. Uh-huh. There were once a girl and a boy who lay on a hill of gravel kissing until their lips were raw. 
kissing was the best thing that had ever happened to the boy and the girl. And so they rode their bicycles to the gravel pit every Sunday in pursuit of that sweet, singular pastime. One Sunday, the boy pulled his T-shirt over his head. He kissed the girl, and the girl kissed him back, and then the girl pulled her T-shirt over her head. The girl didn't have much need for a bra, but her grandmother had taken her bra shopping in the spring, and now the girl wore a bra every day, whether she needed it or not. Without her shirt on, the girl wanted to crush herself against the boy. The boy could not believe the girl's radiant smoothness. Her bra was a miracle. It was like a bikini top, but it was not a bikini top. It was the girl's bra. <laughs> yes, I love the story. <laughs> I love this one, too. And it was a really fun one to write because it felt kind of transgressive and a little bit dirty. It was just the, yeah. So um, I remember the first book that I read of, or the first collection of flash fiction of yours that I read. I can't remember the title of it, and I don't have it with me, but I picked it up when I was at um, Port Townsend, where you're was the artist. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there was like, there was the card game, I think. And then there was, um, I think a guy who was maybe beaten up. I don't know. But there was some intense stuff in there too. And I, what I love is how much you're able to elicit the attention and emotional engagement of a reader in only a few pages. That's good. Thanks. I mean, you know, it's sort of like that's the whole point of flash fiction is to be able to actually impact people deeply and quickly. And all of your work, like every single piece always does that for me. That's awesome. And, and you know, and, and flash fiction is hard for that reason because you don't really have the space that you want to, to be able to go deep into a character. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you do something different. You're not going to get a lot of character development mm -hmm. in a piece of flash fiction, which feels um, heretical in fiction. I mean, what we right. do is character. So if you say, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do much character development, there's a feeling of what? Then why are we here? Well, I mean, I, it's interesting, though. I think, oh, let's see. I've read lots and lots of books. And probably the most important thing to me growing up, and the reason I would go back to an author and read more books by that author, was because of the way in which, yes, I would attach in a way, to the characters, especially as someone who moved a lot. You know, you show up every six months somewhere brand new. You don't make friends that quick in right. middle school or high school or elementary or whatever. And you could always come home and spend a couple hours with your favorite book and your favorite character. Right. And that right. was really important. But you have to get an emotional feeling out of it. The Game of Thrones series, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. lots of people in the world obviously love it. I picked up the first book because my girlfriend was raving about it. I got to page 27, and there had been probably about 35 characters introduced in 27 yeah, right, pages. Right, right, right. And so I didn't care about any of them. And I put the book down. I thought, what? I have no reason to care. Why would I keep reading? And that was it. Well, I wonder if you don't like fantasy. I mean, no, I, I, I don't. No, I grew up on fantasy. So, oh, you do. So that's yeah. the, the genre is no problem. No, Game of Thrones okay. just introduced so many people, and then was and then was killing them off. And yeah, right. I wasn't sad they were dying because I didn't have a reason to care. And that's when I just said, oh. "This isn't my cup of tea." But your you, stuff, you never knew them well enough. Yeah, but your stuff in two or three pages, you have empathy or compassion for a character. Good. 
good. That's awesome. But you know, I, I and I and I appreciate you saying that. That that's great to hear. I also think a big thing with Flash is it's about the music of it. So it, so it's closer. You know, the sound is going to be really pleasing, and it tends mm. to be really um, clearly transgressive too. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of these stories in Wonderland are kind of transgressive stories. I mean, there's a story that imagines um, wonder, you know, Exxon Mobil as a 12 year old girl who, who's in love with Dupont. Um, oh, I, wait, wait, wait. What's the name of that one? It's called Exxon, My Love, oh and it's my based gosh. on it's kind of a response to the Citizens United ruling, which you know said corporations are people. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I said, well, what if corporations were people? When I and when I read that, it, it, <laughs> it was it was 13 years after. Oh, sorry, when I wrote it. It was 13 years after the merger between Exxon and Mobile. So I was imagining Exxon Mobile as a 13-year-old girl. I can't wait to read this. It's, 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 it's playful, but it's kind of, and that's kind of transgressive, mm-hmm. which I think the form allows for. But, yeah. but also that whole thing of the sound of it, the musicality of it in a short, the lines have to be pleasing mm-hmm. in a way that um, I think is different than, other, than longer fiction. It is interesting. I have a collection of flash fiction that I've been developing for the last couple of years. And right. at one point, I um, asked some uh, novelist friends who that's that's what they do is novels. They love it. And they've been yeah, doing it for a long yeah. time. And I asked them yep. to read my flash fiction pieces and give a little bit of feedback. They really I, I sort of stopped asking after getting some feedback, because in a way they were, they wanted me to somehow be able to achieve all that can be achieved by novel in the flash fiction piece. And, and I was like, well, I can't have an entire story arc and 750 words, but I can have, sometimes you can, right. But in in this case, I'm like, I want a flash in the pan and I want a lyrical sense to how it sounds. And I want almost a poetic rhythm to it. And I want you to care about this, and I want you to not know what's going to happen and end with a cliffhanger. And they were like, yeah. but no, no, it has to have a full start, beginning, and story arc. Do you think flash fiction needs to have a complete story arc? No, but I think it can. So, mm-hmm. so I think you can see some short shorts that will feel just like miniature short stories. You know, right. we'll have a complete movement, complete arc, total, you know, character revelation, and then other ones that don't do that at all. Mm-hmm. That, that's more about some kind of weird... Um, revelation, this flash of revelation or this intensity of language with usually with a hard turn at the end of, mm-hmm. of again, yes. some kind of revelation or some kind of shock, but not a cheap shock. Mm-hmm. There's something that feels like an inevitable kind of shock, a moment that you reach that feels nervous and kind of desperate. Mm-hmm. And, and those stories do not need the arc at all. They're, they're operating on a different level. So the form's super elastic and protean. Mm-hmm. It changes. And and that's one of the other things I like about it. But it's also one of the reasons why it so often fails. I mean, because we can read these things and be like, mm, there's just not enough here. Right. You know? True. But True. I, but I I think compared, you know, I've been editing a literary magazine for 13 years. I read mm-hmm. a lot of fiction and I read a lot of flash fiction. Ten years ago, the quality of the um, flash fiction I got was was pretty low. And today, I publish a lot of flash fiction mm-hmm. and I write a lot more flash fiction. And I think it's because of the Internet and how we read and how we tend to want things in smaller bursts. And that's how we've read online for for a number of years, I mean, for 20 years. gotten better at delivering that form. Well, and also television shows, right? They have that idea that every 15 seconds, whatever your point of view is with the camera, as a minimum every 15 seconds, it has to switch. That idea of... um, 
of keeping the mind constantly switching to a, a right. new perspective. It's like a whole right. civilization shift towards this r- rapid, rapid fire. Right. And the problem with that is it's all surface stuff. So we can't go deep when we mm-hmm. do that. We can only go wide. And the way people read on the Internet is they, go, they don't go deep, right? They're going to read something, and then they're going to click on something, they're going to read something else. So they're going to read wide, right. but they're not, going, you know, they're not going to read deep. So, that, so the problem with Flash then is, okay, if you're not going to, if you're going to say, I'm going to give this to you, it's going to be you know, a thousand words, you're going to read it in eight, nine minutes, eight minutes. Mm-hmm. I think the goal has to be that in addition to that brevity, you better also be able to go deep in right. those nine minutes. Right. right and TV. I mean, TV today actually can do that because we have a lot of good TV through places like HBO and some other places. But mm-hmm. in general, you know, not so much. I love that you just brought that up. I'm actually going to put some thought into it because when I think about even people who are going on the internet, let's say they want their information right now. Of course, we're dealing with a whole bunch of stuff happening in the political realm. So yeah. it's like a person can go on to Google and they type in some subject they're curious about, and you're going to have all these articles that are going to come out. I think a lot of people, they're going to look at all these headlines and be like, oh, these 15 headlines all sort of say the same thing. Now I have the gist of what's going on. And then they just move on compared yeah, totally. to opening an article that's three pages long, reading the whole thing, which is what I'll do. And then along the way, there's three names of people that were like the sources of the author. Next thing you know, I'm looking up those people. I'm reading what they've been doing and then who they referenced. So like I'll go to one article and two hours later, I've gone straight down the rabbit hole and I haven't gone sideways at all. Because I already know there's 30 articles out there that say the same thing, but I want to go deep. But I think and you're that's right. that's the beauty of it. When we do the laser focus, we're doing research on a project. And that sounds like you doing research. Yeah. Going deep. That, it, it's amazing, you know. But I tend to not – I don't read as well on the screen. You know, I've got a hard copy yeah. of something. Or I read poetry in the tub as an editor. <laughs> so I, I'll take 40 poems into the tub and it's like, okay, I don't have my phone. Um, there's nothing that can bother me at this moment. And, right. and poet, I think poetry is hard. I, I think it's less um, – easily, immediately accessible, and I, and I have to turn off my kind of rational, you know, what does this mean, brain? And so going to a quiet place where I can't be distracted for that is really, uh, really important to me. And it happened by accident. It was a way for me to escape from my kids when they were little. <laughs> um, Daddy's taking time. a bath. <laughs> right. And, and I took the, take, take the poems, you know, yeah. because, because it's harder for me. I mean, I think it's harder for any reader to get into the quiet space that a poem demands and your body's in the same position. Like, like for me, I find that when the, the, and maybe you'll have an answer to this, I have this weird quandary. Okay. So I'm, one of the things I'm working on is a novel. I've been working on it for five years. Um, I right. finished writing the first version after about a year and a half. I'm on version four. So um, it's this, I love my novel. Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're on your fourth draft right now? Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Sounds so, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and What's interesting is that, so I'll go on a walk, you know, we live on Vashon Island, lots of nature. I go on a walk and I'm walking along, no distractions in nature. Your body's moving. There's no cramps in your neck or your back. You know, your stomach isn't bothering you because you're hunched over your computer. None of that. And all of a sudden my characters will start talking to each other and they'll start having a conversation and it's perfect. And then it's gone. 
And I'm in the middle of the forest, like going, no, no, no. So I've been trying to come up. That's part of the benefit I was hoping to get from a smartphone is that I thought I could carry it. And when, when my characters would start talking to each other, I would just talk out loud to my smartphone. But you know what? I haven't found a program yet that won't go more than 30 seconds and then stop recording my voice. So I need, yeah. So help later. Let's talk about it. I need to record myself when I'm walking. I haven't figured out how to do it. I need a yeah, voice and, to text. And what about taking a notebook, too? Well, then you have to walk. stop the whole time and write it down. True. And True. Yeah, I want to keep moving. Because the point is to do voice to text. You don't want to just record auditory and have to go back and then transcribe. Oh. That's the deal. Voice to text. Yes. Okay. So if I find the perfect thing, I will post it on my website, marchtwisdale.com, and I'll make sure everyone who's looking for the same thing will get access to what I discover. My promise That's to cool. my listeners. I think you're right, too, about getting away from the desk is when all those things start to spark. You yeah. know, you've been working all day. You've been working for five years. As yeah. we all, you know, many of us do on a novel. And yeah. then, but when you, you know, so you're in there, you're, and you're kind of grinding it out, and, you're, and it's kind of in the front of your brain, and it's in front of your face. But when you get away from it, that's when the subconscious mind starts to make those connections, and, yeah. the, and the characters do start to act a lot of times yeah. and surprise you. Yeah, and I, it's just, you know, it's very fluid. The conversations are perfect if I'm on a walk compared to sitting in front of my screen. So real quick, though, I'm going to have to stop for a second and do a station identification. So, folks, you are listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose on Voice of Vashon. That's KVSH 101.9 FM. And we are here as a wonderful community radio station because of the people who support us and make it possible. I would like to thank Island escrow for providing support for this program. Vashon's only independent escrow company providing comprehensive service for all types of real estate transactions since 1979. You can contact them at 206-463-3137. Also, support for this program comes from Northwest School of Animal Massage. NWSAM has something for every animal lover, workshops, professional courses, and blended learning options that allow flexibility as students learn large and small animal massage for professional certification or to take special care of a beloved pet. You can find more information at nwsam.com. All right, so for those of you who are just now tuning in. You're listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and my name is March Twisdale, and I am interviewing Sam Ligon. And let's see, we're going to move sideways here a little bit and talk about a new piece that you have coming out this fall, 2017, and it's called Pie and Whiskey. So um, once again, it's an example. We didn't dive into it too much, but Wonderland, your other collection we were talking about, is a collaboration between yourself and an artist, a visual artist. Pie and Whiskey is also a collaboration. Tell us a little bit about how how that came to be. So Pie and Whiskey is a really is a, is it a it, it, it started in Port Townsend, I want to say eight years ago, where Kate Lebo and I both teach, and Kate Lebo is my partner. We mm-hmm. met at Port Townsend, and she is a pie lady. She's a great, great um, pie baker. She's also a poet. She's also a nonfiction writer. She writes cookbooks. But she, when I met her she at Port Townsend, it was at, um, what's that coffee shop, Better Living Through Coffee? Oh, I, you know, I'm not familiar you know, with, yeah. I think, it's, I think it's Better Living Through Coffee. And it sounds familiar. Bakery case. And I was looking at the bakery case, 
and we somehow started talking about pie, and she tricked me a little bit into, um, you know, she's like, oh, do you make pies? And I was like, yeah, do you? And she's like, yeah. And we started talking, and we just met each other, uh-huh. and we ended up deciding, well, let's, let's bake a pie, and let's invite all the writers at the conference to have a piece of pie. Mm-hmm. So we did, and it turned out that, that she was, in fact, way, way, way beyond my um, skill level. <laughs> I knew a lot, lot about making pie, and I knew a very little. I, mean, I, I make a good pie, but it's real ugly, and she makes really cool, beautiful, right. complex pies. So, so what we realized was bringing the writers together on Tuesday – Instead of on Friday or Saturday, which is when they normally would start to right. have a party or get together, was really cool because once we started this pie and whiskey thing, you know, we give everybody a shot, yep. we give them a piece of pie, then we give them another drink, and it turns the people start talking. They yeah. were like, wow, this is really cool. So we kept doing that. And then when Kate's first book came out, I want to say uh, six years ago, let's do an event with this thing in Spokane, where, mm-hmm. which is where I live. She was living in Seattle then. So we did a reading called Pie and Whiskey, and what we did was we got a hall, and it was part of Get Lit, the literary festival here, and we got just a bunch of writers, writers we knew were really good readers, mm-hmm. to, write, to write short pieces about pie and or whiskey. No kids could be there because we're serving them whiskey. And right, free. right, we're giving, right. We're giving them pie. We're giving them whiskey. No kids. And when we, said, when we say no kids, it means, okay – I'm going to write about sex. They're going to write about drugs. They're going to write about. They're going to write. They're going to act like adolescents. They're basically going to act like 14 year olds. If there are no kids there, which is what every writer did. And but the the stuff was great. It's super fun. Uh-huh. The, the first one we made ten pies, and I got uh, four fifths of whiskey from uh, Dry Fly, which is the distiller in Spokane. Was that enough? And th- no, 300 people showed up. Yeah, yeah, right? We, yeah. We thought, yeah, it turns out if you give people free pie and whiskey, they come. Uh-huh. We, we had no idea. We were like, we don't know. You know, who, we don't know if anybody's going to ski because most readings are boring. You know, you're going to go out to a reading, you 300 people going to come out? Yeah. So we were like, all right. So, so we're like, shit, this is cool. We're on to something. So the next year, you know, we made 20 pies, and we got two cases of whiskey, and we got 400 people. And it was the same thing. And you know, it was the same kind of like, wow, this is insane. The audience is like... Uh, intense or half drunk, but not too drunk. I, mean, I don't want people leaving the place drunk and right, killing right. somebody in their car. So I mean, we, everybody gets a shot. You yeah. know? They can buy a second shot and that's it. Yeah. Don't want them to be you know, crazy. But they're, they're, they're excited. You know? they're, mm-hmm. they're smashed into a room. They're eating the best pie they've ever had in their life. They're drinking really good whiskey. And the writers know that they're about to lose control of the room at any second. So I'm like, you better read fast, and you better be good. Right. Like you're going to hold a room of 400 people. Yeah. It's like screaming. It's like you're in a hurricane. Well, I'm so assuming audience, you have a, a time limit. Like at H- oh, Hugo yeah. House, it's yeah. always like five minutes. And if you start to go over five minutes, they're like banging the, you know, they're like bang, bang, bang on the little glass jar type That's of thing. Right. Yeah, it's five minutes. Five minutes is a long time, actually. So, yeah, yeah, I'm usually like aim for two or three minutes, and that's a good amount of time. But, but and, that, and you have to be a good reader, too. And not everybody is. And that has yeah. nothing to do with the quality of their writing. True. You know, some people just aren't that good of readers. And yeah. that's okay. That's a different skill. But, but so I got to make sure at a pie and whiskey that the people are actually great writers and great readers. Right. That they can hold the room, you know? Yeah. So, and, plus, and so the audience is there, and they want it to be good, and they want to laugh. Yeah. And they want it to be kind of, you know, something that, they, you know, transgressive, something they've never seen before. So, oh, yeah. so the thing became this weird phenomenon. And then Missoula, the people in Missoula came to us and said, can you come do this in Missoula? Right. And we were like, yeah, we'll do it in Missoula. <laughs> so we, we got these great writers 
And then oh, Kate, it's a great idea. A called, it's super fun. Kate had a book called Pie School that came out with Sasquatch books. That this is a great pie cookbook, and mm-hmm. it's got killer writing about um, life and about pie in it too. And her publisher, Sasquatch, came to a pie and whiskey. I want to say three year, two years ago. Mm-hmm. Said, "Hey, let's do a book of the right. best." And right. we we're like, "Okay." So what we did was we took some of the a bunch of the best. Uh, now we've done like nine of these things. We, right. we, we got a bunch of the best writing from that. But then we also said, okay, well, we don't want just that. So we had each we, – we have eight sections of the book because there's eight pieces of pie. Um, and we have one anchor piece for each section. So right. one section has an anchor piece that's a long piece by like Jess Walter or by Kate or by me um, or by Sherry Flick. And then each piece has these shorter pieces from Pie and Whiskey's. Each each section. Each section has a pie recipe, and then each section has a cocktail recipe by me, right. which isn't really a cocktail recipe at all, but it is about, you know, like, um, well, I can't even explain it. It's this idiotic American rant in you making a Manhattan. Well, you know, I think that um, that might have been the one that you guys were still just dating on or working on when I was at Centrum, because that was my my memory was that there was this alignment between various types of of different types of drinks that would be perfectly paired with this type of pie. So it sounds like that was maybe the one that I was. Right. And I and I'm not a drinker because I mostly don't like the flavor of alcohol. So um, and I've never tasted whiskey <laughs> you know and you have it. no i i keep thinking there must be some great thing i'm missing out on but i haven't had the guts yet to actually like taste most alcohols the what we determined we were like what is it about mm-hmm. that why do people love that mm-hmm. and what we so we kind of thought about it a lot you know we're like what, what is it what does it mean and one of the things we concluded was this is something really weirdly american about that i mean nobody <laughs> says you know yeah, pie, of course, feels really American, but so does whiskey. Yeah. You don't think of a cowboy going into a bar and ordering a martini. Right. You know, a cowboy's going to go into a bar and get whiskey. Yeah. That's what the cowboy's going to drink. Yeah. And the other thing was it, it felt like a weird, um, you know, pie's kind of sweet. Pie's something you're going to have at a, maybe at a church social. Mm-hmm. And whiskey's really not sweet. Whiskey's kind of corrupt. And we, think, we thought, well, maybe it's a combination of that sweetness with a little bit of corruption and it was fun working on that book together. So Kate and I got to do a book together. I mean, we yeah. done books separately, and it was super fun to work on a project together. Yeah. And we, we started talking at the beginning of talking with a little bit about collaboration. And one of the things – I'm a, a musician, too, and I used to play in a mm. band. And one of the things I loved about playing in a band was working with other people. Oh, and one of the right. things I hated about playing in a band was working with other people. <laughs> you know, it was like, it's like okay, yeah, there's problems. You want to be a little bit of a dictator, maybe, especially mm-hmm. when you're younger yeah. uh, as an artist. And as, and as I've gotten older as a writer, I was like, you know, I miss the sense of collaboration. And as writers, we really don't get that very often. Right. We work at our desk. We, I mean, if we're lucky, we get a good editor and we collaborate with the editor at a certain part of the process. Yeah, but you're but collaborating get... with the person who's critiquing what you're doing compared to collaborating with the person who's going to co-create. Right. Totally. Totally different. And so the idea of actually being able to collaborate, to get into, a, to share a creative space with another artist is really appealing. Mm-hmm. So, so however that can work for me right now. So in the case of Wonderland, you know, my, the guy who did the art, I it was a former student of mine and also an editor. And I said, mm-hmm. hey, Steve, and he's a great collage artist. I said, dude, will you look at these stories for me? And would you, maybe we'll do a chat book. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, he's like, Let, he, and he was like, let's do a whole book. He goes, send me everything you have of these, 
And so I did. And then he, he helped me with the edits. He helped me choose what was going to go into the book. Right. Then he did the art and I did the same thing with him. I was like, I don't like this piece. Let's do something different with this. Right. But it was super cool to have it be, to have two egos involved in it, which means that your ego has to be expand and contract. And not to mention from the promotion perspective and whatnot, now you've got two people fully invested in wanting to help spread the word and bring uh, this production to people's awareness. Well, and, and for this particular book, it's the, the art is what makes it cool. The, the art just completely opens up those stories in a super weird way, I think. So I see a right. really nice balance here. I don't see a domination of one over the other. No, no, I don't either. But then, and then my friend Sherry Fleck, who's a great short fiction writer, said, hey, do you want to collaborate on a short? Mm-hmm. And, and I was like, yes. So we did that together. And you, each two, you can only write two lines at a time. It was oh. super, super cool. So it reminded me of playing, you know, playing in a band or when I play with people now, playing right. with musicians and having to listen really, really hard. So on the one hand, you're, you're going to have to advance the story. But at the same time, you, you better listen to what your collaborator is doing and what she wants. Well, what's that help thing? her advance? What's that thing that people do? Oh, like, like an improv thing, Improv. Right? Well, yeah, improv's yeah. the same thing. Everything you're doing is short. It's collaborative. Similar well, idea, I think. In, so I like the power of the collaboration, and I don't want to only do that. I mean, I still want to, you know, work on my own work and go into my own space with it. But what a pleasure to be able to do that. Well, so now here's here's this, this is something really cool because we're going to start to shift over in this last quarter of the show to a third piece. And I'm going to just preface it a little bit, and then I'm going to give out some thanks to people who make Voice of Ash Impossible. And then we're going to come back. But on one hand, I feel like right now, perhaps for the first time in my lifetime, we are seeing a co-creative collaboration of the American people coming together as the, from the bottom up, creators of what our nation wants to aspire to be. So that's, that's, I think, we could almost look at what's happening in the world today as a new step in that direction. But also, I wanted to mention before I forgot, I bet if you went to a place like that, a town like that, and you invited all the writers to come out of their holes and gather together for a pie and whiskey event, you would have found and isolated your more open-minded, you know, what can we do with the world type of people who live in that area. And it's a way almost of them to self-identify as, I'm not the only one who's thinking this way. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, it definitely it definitely unifies or creates a community amongst the writers, but it also extends to this gigantic audience. Missoula is in you know western Montana, Mm -hmm. surrounded by mountains. It's surrounded by you know you go outside of town. There's plenty of ranches, right? You know, and there's plenty of rural America. Right. Missoula is where University of Montana is. Missoula is a cool town. Missoula Mm -hmm. is kind of a groovy town. You know, Mm -hmm. progressive town. But people are coming in from all walks of life. And, and this is true of Spokane, too. Right? This would be true of anywhere you would do this. Right. At a pie and whiskey, you're going to bring in all kinds of different people. Mm-hmm. So, so ranchers, for example, like pie and whiskey. Yeah. So, so the, other adva- the other cool thing is you'll bring in people who wouldn't necessarily get together. Exactly. And they start listening to each other and they start hearing each other. When I used to go to the Hugo house, they had a, I think it was maybe every single week for an entire year, they were going to have open readings as a way of encouraging people to really put energy into finishing some of their projects. And um, Kristen Young was going, she and I had been in the EDGE program with the Artist Trust. And I was, yes, that's where we met. And I just remember the number one thing I got out of that experience was sitting in a room with all these people and each person that would get up young teenage 
black girl, older, grizzly, white man. You know, you, a human steps in front of you and you have these adjectives that jump up that describe their exterior facade. And then they open their mouths and they start reading for five minutes what they wrote. And what they wrote would be all over the map. And I remember thinking, I mean, you know, my husband's Mexican, you know, I'm a pretty liberal thinking person. So it's like, I try very hard to never judge by exterior, but a lot of people do judge. I mean, that's why we're dealing with this whole thing about seven countries and people can't come into the country and the Muslim ban and all this stuff. People want to judge on externalities. And I just remember thinking if everyone could sit here and watch that person who would be assumed to think in this way, and this person is speaking completely different from that generality or from that stereotype, there's, it's just amazing if you take the time to listen to people, they'll always surprise you. Yeah. Yep. So I love your pie and whiskey idea, and I encourage you to take it forth into middle America, into towns <laughs> where people are being ruled by confusion and misinformation and unite the people. <laughs> well, what we really want to do is have other people do it because we, we, uh, we can do yes. this all over. And, yeah. we'll, and we'll probably do like eight of them, or, you know, and we'll do one in New Orleans and we'll do one in – you know, we'll do one in Seattle for sure. Mm-hmm. We'll do one in, 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 again in Spokane, Missoula. And, and we could do it probably nonstop. We were like, if we do this, we're never going to write again. Right, so of course. We thought, okay, how can we limit this? But also, so what we're trying to do is make it so we get the word out and say, now you go do this. You yeah. go make a pie and whiskey. Yeah, exactly. No, I love it. Okay, so real quickly, because I really love the people on my island who make Voice of Ashon possible, I want to go ahead and just remind everyone you're listening to Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, recorded in the studios of Voice of Ashon, and that there's a reason we're here, and it's because of the generosity of your fellow community members. Support for this program, for example, comes from Amiad and Associates. If you're looking for a green realtor, Emma Amiad is a certified eco-broker with over 25 years' experience selling real estate on Vashon Island. Um, Also, KVSH program support is provided by Dental Care of Vashon. Whether you're suffering from tooth or gum discomfort, damaged or missing teeth, sleep issues, or are in need of crowns or dental implants, Dr. Demova's team at Dental Care of Vashon will bring you relief and renewed confidence in a comfortable, caring environment. You can contact them at 206-463-9115 or go to dentalcareofvashon.com. What would you like to share with our listeners about what do you care about and what is causing you to choose to go to Olympia to do your work there? And what did you learn in New York as a union leader? And, and how does all of that matter to you? And what can we take away? Okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I was a, a union leader on Long Island for about eight years, which was really exciting, interesting work. And it actually, um, from that experience, it helped me write my first novel, which was called Safe in Heaven Dead and involved. Uh, public se- some public sector unions in Michigan, and I learned a lot, and, and that experience helped me write that novel. Now I have the opportunity to be a lobbyist. So I'm uh, creative writing faculty at Eastern Washington University in Spokane, and this university, like all univer- public universities in, in Washington, has, the university has lobbyists. So there's a lobbyist that represents the university interest, there's a student lobbyist, and there's a faculty lobbyist. So I'll be going to Olympia part-time starting next year to lobby on issues that matter to higher education. So hold on real Uh, quick. Wait. So the common perspective of a lobbyist is not always a pot. Yeah, thank you. So tell us how you are going to 
Tell us what lobbying means to you and how are you going to do this in a way that is something we can feel good about? Right. I mean, I, and I think that I mean, I think there's problems with lobbyists for good reason, because we perceive lobbyists as representing special interests, which is exactly what they do. Yeah. Lobbyists represent special interests. And we see lot. For example, we see a gun lobby that is incredibly powerful. You could say, you know, this, the t- tobacco lobby or, you know, you know, various lobbies that we view as very negative. So real so, quick. So then, for example, when um, I've been, I was recently doing research into this and looking at these amazing advertisements from the 50s, we know for a fact that the tobacco industry would use money to lobby on behalf of legislation that would benefit their bottom line. Right. And, what and other type right. of lobby work is there out there that that's a different type of special interest that's not a for-profit well, special interest? But I think, I mean, this wouldn't be a for-profit special interest, but it would be, I mean, one goal, and, and but any lobbyist would say this, right? I mean, Philip Morris lobbyists would say, our goal is to educate the legislator, yeah. right? We're trying to teach them about our issues. And, and that's true. You know, so one of the things that I would be doing as, as lobbying for public higher education in the state of Washington is absolutely trying to educate. Here's what we do. Here's why it matters. You know, here's the percentage of first-generation students we deal with. Here's what it costs. Here's how we need your help. And here's how we can help you help us in a way that helps them as well. And that yeah. sounds like dirty quid pro quo, and it is a little bit. But if you can say, I can help you figure out how to help me. Right. I can help you do the right thing because really one thing I know, and I think you know, and, and I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you data on this, is college education is much, much cheaper than prison. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so one thing we can think about is people that go to college typically don't go to prison. Now, I'm not, I don't mean to, I'm not trying to get into a class thing here right. or to suggest that educated people are good or anything like that. Right. But what I am suggesting is people who have education typically have opportunities, more opportunities than people who don't have education. And people who are so desperate how- might be more vulnerable to falling into doing something that's criminal. So the question becomes, how can we get together to do the right thing? And how right. can I help you, politician, do that? Right. And, and one of the things I'm going to want to do is tell you what it is we do so that you can go out. Because, frankly, we have a problem in this country where we don't want to pay for things. Right? We've, we've, got, we've, we've stopped believing in public education. Mm-hmm. We say, yeah, we don't really want to pay for that. We need to re- I think we need to rethink what is it that we're paying for and what do we get for what we're paying for and what does that mean? And I think yeah. that's part of the education, too. So you, so you are an expert, obviously. You've been in this field. You understand a lot of the issues. And so and you're you're a good writer. You're a good speaker. You're a good presenter. And so basically they've said, hey, we are watching legislation come out of Olympia and I know in the areas that I work in, when I go to Olympia, as an informed consent advocate, when I talk to people, 95% or more of the people that I would talk to know they've gone wide on the issue, they've not gone deep, and they don't know diddly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm there to say, hey, you know, just like you are, here's what's going on. Um, So the question is, how do we parse out the difference between that type of legislation versus what it was that was going on that allowed, you know, the tobacco industry to have an extra 10 years causing the country to not acknowledge the fact that, you know, they were causing lung cancer and and small weight babies and blah, 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 blah. So how do we parse out the difference between 
a good lobbyist and a bad lobbyist. I mean, I think, and I and I, and I wouldn't suggest that there are um, that it's <clears throat> industry based. I think there are probably plenty of bad lobbyists in good industries and, mm-hmm. and doing things that might not be awesome. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a matter of. I, I mean, this is going to sound so cliche, but you know, in my experience, when I was a union leader, you you'd always talk about is somebody a straight shooter? Do you trust that person? Is what they're saying? Um, Real? Is it true? Yeah. Or is it just double talk? Is it political nonsense? I mean, one of the things that I, one of the one of the issues I've noticed being in the West for the last twelve years is people say that I'm very, very direct. <laughs> I think that's a result of having lived in the East for a long time. So right. I say exactly what I think. Yeah. And and I and I don't lie. Yeah. I think one thing you can tell a good lobbyist by is I think you just, like it's just like a good news source. You know, do you trust this news source? Is this news source a liar? I don't right. think it helps to say I'm not after my self interest. I'm doing this for you know lambs and motherhood and the game of baseball. Right. I'm going to say, hey, I'm, I'm coming into here with self interest, and my self interest is public higher education, which is something that supports the state of Washington and our and every single person in the state of Washington. And here's how it helps every single person in the state of Washington. And if I can make an argument that teaches you that and you believe me, I've been a good lobbyist. And and it better be true what I'm saying, too. Well, and you know what I think is really fascinating? And we're going to have to sort of, I'll I'll say this, and then, you know, we're going to be coming to an end here, unfortunately, because I'm having tons of fun. Um, One of the interesting things is that the baby boomer generation, Bernie Sanders, my mom and dad, you know, um, that generation benefited from a huge amount of government investment in yeah. higher education. And it's yeah. really fascinating that it seems like that generation has gotten amnesia and forgotten that, you know, my mother and father were going to UCSB for about $200 a semester. Yeah. And my son right now is going to you know, Seattle Central. That's a junior college in downtown yep. Seattle. Yep. And if yep. he were paying cash for all of his classes, because right now he's in the Running Start program, it's $3,500 for, yep. quote, a semester at a junior college. So we have this big, huge voting block of people who benefited from our smart legislators 40 years ago who said, we got to get those people educated. And now they tend to have heard this mantra of, well, you know, we can't afford to pay for today's youth to go to college. Yeah. And, and we saddle them with that bondage. I mean, we're, oh, we're, yeah. we're making them, we're, we're absolutely putting them into bondage. Yeah. And, yeah, and what's it's a that, um, Indentured servitude. Yes. Yeah. And people will say, well... Maybe everybody shouldn't go to college. Maybe you got a bunch of people. Go, and I have. I, and let's have that discussion. Cool. Yeah, you're right. Not everyone does need to go to college. No, no of course not. That. But at the same time, if the average debt load for a student coming out of college, and I don't have this data at my fingertips, yeah. but I think it's about thirty grand. That's average. Yeah. Um, that means that kid's not buying a house anytime yeah. soon. That kid's that, that kid's not buying a new car anytime soon. I think there are problems with the way we're handling. Funding, and that's another issue. I yeah. mean, in, in general, we're doing an okay job in Washington State with making public education affordable. We're doing okay. We can do better. And that's only um, oh, wait, wait, wait. That's okay compared to America, compared to Denmark. No, no, compared to America. And and if you look at where we were before the crash, if you yeah. look at where we were in two thousand seven, two thousand six, we were doing much better. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I mean, so that that's the discussion we need to have. And it's a discussion. And, 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 you know, you and I were talking about earlier. It's about resources. Yeah. Just like every economic discussion is about. It's about resources. How do we want to handle our kids? And it's not economic. It's everything. How every discussion about war, economics, everything, ultimately human beings, it all boils down to resource allocation. That's how you drink, eat. And live. So, right. it, you know, fundamentally, how we manage our shared resources on this planet is a conversation to have. And we're at an interesting point in Washington right now with a, with a, with a valuable discussion about public education because of the McCleary decision. We've got the legislature right now talking about, okay, how do we, how are we going to fund this? And yeah. so I think it's a really good time to get into the discussion and say, what are we doing and where do we want to be in five years? So real quick, when you go into Olympia, because the session goes through, I think, April 23rd this year. I'm heading down start, in March. When do you go? I don't start until next year. Okay, so got I, it. I'll, go, I'll start in January 18th. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you really might want to start if they'll do it for you, because there's two ways of doing it. One is to be in Olympia, and the other is to be connecting with people in advance while they're um, – like trying to prepare for re-election and stuff with the representatives Absolutely. only two. So, you know, there's a lot more. Once you, I find sometimes I'm behind the eight ball if I show up, like, if I show up in March, I'm a little bit behind the eight ball. Half the time they've already voted on or discussed the issue that I would care about. I try to go down in February, but this year I'm joining with another action that's happening mid-March. But, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I'm going to have to do a lot of work before then. Yeah. before next January. I'll be going over there before. And then the other thing for me is, you know, I'm, I'm a writer, so I, I can't let this take over my entire life. Oh. This has got to be part of my life, and then yes. I've got to be able to also write while I'm doing that job, too. We should talk tricky. about that, because I am finding it... <laughs> That's the hard part, right? Yeah, how do I... How Sitting down and writing, like, my novel or whatever, it's like I have to get into this place where I can be relaxed and diffused into the creative space. You can't do that when you just spent an hour and a half on Facebook looking at what's happening, you know, in North Dakota. <laughs> I know. I know. Oh. And that's, I mean, I, I, that's why for a lot of people, I think you do it first thing in the morning. Do it yes. before there's any noise. You know, yes. don't look at Facebook. Don't go to your email. Don't yeah. interact with anybody. I mean, for me, it's like I don't want to have any contact. And I'm not saying I, I succeed at this. I know. <laughs> um, but this is what I know is best for yes. me. No contact. And, for, and, you know, and the closer I am to sleep, coming out of sleep, the better. Yep. Um, I mean, my mind's in a different, weird place. And I think don't, you know, if I don't check my email, I'm way better off. Don't look at the pile of laundry on the ground and don't, no. don't look at anything at all. Put your blinders on. <laughs> right. and even, and just, and, but even if you could say, okay, I'm going to do that for an hour. Mm-hmm. Or, I'm gonna, or, or, or for me, I'd like, to, for me, I'd like two hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Minimum. Yes. And I can't do more than four. Yeah. So it's, it's not that huge of a space. And I've had times in my life where there's too much going on. I was like, okay, I need to get up at six in the morning to be able to do this. And I don't like doing that. I'm not a morning person. No, at me all. either. Uh-uh. I don't want to be up at that time. Yeah. And so I had to trick myself that, okay, this is what I have to do to finish this novel. And I'm going to do this for a while. And then it got to be kind of cool because no one else was awake. Right. And I started to, I started to kind of like it, but I still will immediately revert to sleeping till nine if I can. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yes. I've got to stay up till two in the morning. Yeah, right? I know. Um, I know. Me too. Exactly. Yeah. <sighs> okay. Well, so, so uh, you know, if you don't mind, I think um, in the fall, 
when you've got, okay, let me double check my notes here. So you've got pie and whiskey, the the, yep. the one coming out in the fall. Yep. Yep. Let me go ahead and have you call in again in the fall and we'll do a second interview because there's, yeah, there's so much to talk about. All right. Yeah. So, um, well, let's see here. Thank you very much for taking the time and calling in. It's been fun, Mark. Let's, let's definitely do it again. I hope to see you in Port Townsend or somewhere. Right, right, right. I didn't talk much about that. So, yes, everyone. And it'll be in, uh, we'll make sure it's in your bio on the page. So, as the artistic director of the Port Townsend Writers Conference, um, people can always Google that and check it out. Thanks again, Sam, for being with me. My name is March Twisdale. You've been listening to my interview with Sam Ligon, author of several published works, artistic director of the Port Townsend Writers Conference, editor of Willow Springs, and educator extraordinaire at Eastern Washington University. Thank you for joining us today for another episode of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, where my guest authors share how they hope to inspire positive change in the world, one reader and one listener at a time.